Now, Peter, in this second epistle, is going to be reminding his readers and us of things that we already know. And that could be boring and tedious. I understand this. I'm very aware of this. It is a mortal sin for a pastor to bore people and send them to sleep. I could be struck by lightning, even as we speak, for sinning grievously against you. But I won't do that because what Peter is going to be talking about is stuff that we don't expect. Because we got this idea about Christianity. Eh, I know Christianity. You got to put effort into following Jesus. And if we do pretty good, then we're accepted by God. And, you know, the problem is we get tired of doing this. I get tired of reading my Bible. I get tired of going to church. I get tired of the whole Megillah. And there are lots of fun things to do, more fun than this. So that is a problem, isn't it? But this describes every religion on the planet, but not Christianity. Christianity has its own built-in life and power, and it doesn't get old. Because Christianity is God himself working in us with divine power to do things we don't expect. That's what he's talking about this morning. So Simon Peter starts off, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Now, I had a terrible week trying to unpack those words because there's so much in them. And again, I hope I don't kill anybody. If you think you're in mortal danger, raise your hand, and I'll try to back off, okay? Nobody gets killed this morning. My promise to you. Now, the first thing I want you to notice that we do not expect is that Christianity humbles you. And you see it in how Peter describes himself. Simon Peter, a bondservant. And you think, why should he do that? Wouldn't you, if you were an apostle, 
lay out the apostle thing first off and everybody knows who's who? Simon Peter, CEO, God.com. But he doesn't do that. Bondservant is as low as you can go in society. That doesn't get any admiration or doesn't impress anybody. Hi, I'm a bondservant. <laughs> Aren't you interesting? And, and what is your name? It's not calculated to impress, but here's the deal. In this process of Peter getting saved, he was always getting humbled by Jesus. If you read about Peter in the Gospels, he's always getting baffled by Jesus. He's among those guys that say, oh, don't bring Jesus the little kids. Get them out of here. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Bring those kids over here. Oh, okay, sorry, he wants you. Embarrassing, right? Or, you know, the disciples are having a little talk while they're on the road, and Jesus says, well, what were you guys talking about? Nothing. Well, okay, we were talking about which one of us is the greatest. But when we're standing in your presence, it's a little stupid. So all the apostles kind of shrink in real time. Oops. At the Last Supper, Jesus tells the apostles, you guys, it's going to be a tough night. All of you are going to fall away from me. Peter says, not me. I'm with you. Oh, Peter, before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. I'm just trying to let you know. No way. And then he does. Can you imagine how Peter is feeling? So, you know, in John chapter 20 or 21, Peter kind of hits bottom. And he's seen Jesus raised from the dead, but he's going to go back to fishing, commercial fishing. He's done. He wants to do Jesus a favor and just fade out and forget the discipleship stuff and the apostle. I mean, forget that, man. So he's fishing and catches nothing, and Jesus gives him breakfast. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I kind of love you. Well, feed my sheep, will you? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter is just shrinking. He is mortified. He goes, you know what? You know I kind of like you, and that's it. I haven't got any more. Jesus says, feed my sheep. I want you to work for me, okay? You're trying to get yourself fired, and I don't want to fire you. I want you to work for me. Can you do that? So here's Peter. He's working for Jesus, but he's not impressed with himself because this is what happens when you follow Jesus. You become less and less impressed with yourself. Man, you thought you knew what you were doing. 
thought you were doing Jesus a favor. Guess what? You're not. And you think, well, if I was getting any better at this, I would feel a little more confident. But I'm less and less confident all the time. Now, have you ever tried to quit following Jesus? Anybody? You ever felt like giving up? Oh, what a bunch of liars here this morning. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I think the lightning is going to strike you, not me. I'm going to walk away alive. I feel good about this. No. <laughs> you don't get to sit this test twice. Now, look, I've tried to quit. My hand is up, too. And I can't get them to fire me. This is the weirdest thing in the world. Why can't you get somebody competent in here instead of me? And he won't do it. So I find it funny. The longer I go, the less I think about myself. But the more I think about God, how amazing he is. Because he not only loves me, but he likes me. You know, you can love somebody like, I love you. But that's not the same as, I really like you. And he likes us. Now, Peter is not an apostle because of his abilities. Because he can produce and really rack up the statistics. He's there because Jesus humbled him and then said, here's the job I want you to do. I want you to be the CEO of God.com. I want you to be an apostle. Okay. If you want me to do that, I'll do that. You could get somebody smarter, but you want me, so I guess I'm going to roll with that. And that's amazing, isn't it? That's humility. Now, you know, Peter says here, to those who have obtained like precious faith. The same relationship with God that Peter has. And if you have the same faith that Peter has, you are going to be humbled. Do you expect that? No, you thought you were going to get better and better and better. Hey, I'm really good at this. You find out, no, I'm more terrible than I ever was. And you learn to put all of your trust and hope in Jesus, that he really is going to save you, and he's saving you right now. Isn't that interesting? You don't get to feel good about yourself. What kind of a religion is this? All the other religious guys feel good about themselves. They can tell you, I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and that's what I do. I'm fervent in my religion. I feel really good about myself. And all of us Christians go, me? <laughs> Jesus. He's phenomenal. I just work for him. This is the only relationship with God on the planet that humbles you. All right. Christianity is also the same for everybody. 
Do you expect that? You know, in the world, the big guys are on a different program. The big guys get all the perks and they get the little guys to pay for those perks. So all the guys at the top have all the perks. All the guys on the bottom pay for that. They're on a different program. Have you noticed that? Like this national insurance increase is only going to hit the people on the bottom. It's not going to even lightly touch anybody on the top. Isn't that weird? And everybody said, don't do it. It's not good. And he went ahead and did it anyway. Okay, fine. We love everybody. But there aren't two plans in Christianity. One for the apostle at the top, and the rest for us losers on the bottom. Because Peter says, like precious faith. Isn't that crazy? That means that you are on the same level as the Apostle Peter. He's not better than you, so he gets a better plan. Because he found out the awful truth. He's a sinner. And you're a sinner. And that means we're all the same. It means we all are dead in our sins and transgressions. And it also means we have nothing we can do about it. That is, we can't offer anything to God so that he says, mm, that's pretty good, I accept you. Nothing we offer, nothing Peter could offer. Bankrupt, broke. So there's no reason in us for God to look at us. But he says, this is like precious faith. And that means two things. It means value and it means honor. Now, this relationship with God through Jesus gets you to heaven, glorified. And Everybody gets glorified. Nobody gets left out. You think, well, I'm doing a terrible job at this. And so that means I'm going to show up partially glorified. I'm not going to be like a spotlight. I'm going to be like a watch that glows in the dark. And sometimes, you know, when you haven't really lit it up before you go to bed, you try to find out what time it is. And you can't see it because it's not doing very good. You think, well, this is me in glory. It doesn't really work until you look in the dark, because <laughs> otherwise you can't see it. No. Peter's going to be glorified, and so is Rob. And you won't be able to tell them apart, almost. It's like, oh, wow, guys, shut it off. But we're all going to be like that. It's like precious faith. But then it has the same honor. 
as the Apostle Peter. You think, well, I'm not as honorable as the Apostle Peter. I haven't done anything. I haven't seen Jesus. But it means to God, you have the same value as the Apostle Peter. You mean the same. He loves you like he loves Billy Graham and Charles Spurgeon and J. Hudson Taylor and Martin Luther. And he loves you the same way. You know, he chooses to save you. That word obtained there, it means to receive an inheritance by lot. That means a choice. It was apportioned to you. And that means God himself chose you to be saved. So you didn't do anything for this. He chose you. He said, mm, that one. I want that one. And that turned out to be you. So God has assigned you to receive eternal life. So we get saved in the same way as the Apostle Peter got saved. And that's by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't get saved because of what we have done. What we have done qualifies us to be destroyed forever. So we don't want to be judged on that. Peter didn't get saved because of his intense spirituality and goodness. And it's Jesus' goodness that saved Peter, saves us. That is, he's sinless. He's absolutely perfect. When he gets baptized there at the River Jordan, the Holy Spirit comes down on him, heaven splits open, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. No spot, no blemish, Nothing wicked or contrary to the Father. The Father says, He's mine. He is my beloved. And Jesus fulfilled all the righteousness required in the law. All 613 commandments fulfilled beautifully so that God says, Oh, I love him. And it's because he is absolutely perfect that he could be our substitute in punishment. He paid the penalty that the law requires. Every sinner has to die. And if that sentence isn't carried out, the law is not upheld. It's broken. So the law must be carried out, and the sentence must go out. And that sinner must die unless there is a sinless substitute. And Jesus said, I'll do that. And that is righteous. He fulfilled the law on your behalf. Everything you should have done and everything that you should receive because you haven't done what you should have done, he fulfilled it all. And that 
is counted by God as perfect righteousness, that the righteous one should give his life to save those who are unrighteous. God says, that is fabulous. I am raising you from the dead. And then that's how we get saved. We just look at Jesus. And as we look at him, we receive the righteousness of God. Just like when Moses put the bronze serpent up on the pole in the middle of the camp and you get bit by a snake, quick, look at that bronze snake and you won't die. Just as simple as that. So you look to Jesus and realize he fulfilled all righteousness for you. You're saved, just like that. Because of his righteousness, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus. Now he's saying right there that Jesus is God. And it is in absolutely concrete language. There's no way to, to misconstrue this or make it ambiguous. He is really calling Jesus God. And in Isaiah, it says, I, the Lord, am your Savior. And besides me, there is no other. So our Savior has to be God, or we don't get saved. And that's what Peter is saying. Jesus is eternal, everlasting, almighty God. And he's the one who has saved us. So Paul says this about the righteousness of God. He says, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And Isaiah speaks about this righteousness. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now, you know, you wear your best clothes for a wedding, especially if you're the bride or the groom. You want to look your fabulous best. And you know the rule. Nobody else is supposed to look better than the bride. You're not supposed to show up and, and you know, dress hipper than the bride. That's a big no-no. Well, so she's going to dress herself the most fabulous, and so's the groom. But it says here that God has dressed me 
with his own stuff. The best of the best. And so here I am, clothed in this fabulous robe of righteousness. His robe. That should make you happy. He's giving you his own righteousness as a gift. And you know, we tend to relate to God on a pretty natural basis. That is, if I'm doing pretty good, then I feel pretty good about God. I feel like, yeah, he's looking at me and saying, way to go, Rob. You're really doing good, and I'm really impressed. Keep up the good work, man. And yet, that's not true. You're not doing good work. You're terrible. You're doing a lousy job. But because God is righteous and merciful, he chooses you and gives you great value and great honor. Now that's Christianity. Do you expect that? I didn't. I'm reading this stuff and I'm going, wow, this is... And it always surprises me. And I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to go, oh yeah, I know this stuff. But then you read it and you go, wow, this is different. This is the shocking part that really gets to me is that this Christianity is God's divine power working in a person by his divine promise. And, you know, we're used to thinking we get somewhere by our own effort. I have met many Catholics who say, yeah, I'm a Catholic. I'm not a very good Catholic. It seems to go together, these two statements. Yeah, I'm a Catholic. No, I'm not a very good Catholic, you know. I don't do all that stuff, but I'm kind of a Catholic. And we have our own Protestant version of being a virtual Catholic. Is we have, yeah, I'm a Catholic. I believe this stuff, but I'm not very good at it. <laughs> But I'm kind, of a, I'm kind of a Christian. Just not very good. I know this is true because I think this way. But you know, this is not what it means to know Jesus. It's not how it works. It is new life. And it's a life with power. And it means no Christian is working away on his own. Here's salvation. It's as tall as Mount Everest. If you get to the top, you get God. Good luck. That isn't Christianity. Being a Christian means living with divine life and the divine power of the Father. That's what it means to be a Christian. And you notice that Peter says in verse 3, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things, everything, not one left out. 
And it's through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. And this is the deal. He has given us a promise, an oath, that he says, I will do this. Then we receive that promise and we say, he said he would do this in me. And then we believe him. You said you would do this in me. And then he does it. That's Christianity. Now, Peter calls these exceedingly great and precious promises. And that exceedingly great is what is called a superlative. Good, better, best. And the best is the superlative. Better is a comparative. This is better than that. But when you get to best, that means there's nothing better. You've got to the top the best. And this is what Peter says here. You could translate it, the greatest. There isn't another way for him to say it that's even better. So the translators have said, exceedingly great. They're stretching the language and trying to make it what Peter wants to say here. And precious means valuable and costly. Now, you know, a promise that isn't fulfilled isn't worth anything. Oh, yeah, 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 I'll do that. Oops, I didn't do that. How valuable was that? Pfft, nothing. But a promise that is fulfilled, that's valuable. That's like, wow, you did it. Fabulous. Well, God only gives faithful promises. God doesn't give any promise that he doesn't fulfill. No empty promises. Everything he promises, he delivers. And he delivers them because Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead. And that means all the promises of God in Jesus are yes and amen. Jesus confirms every promise of God. That's 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Now, God can't lie, and he won't break his promise. That's why I read Hebrews 6. Two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Isn't that amazing? Now, you know, God cannot lie because he's the truth. And if he said, I will do this, that should be enough. But then he doubled it and said, I swear by myself. That means if he doesn't do this, he's not God. And you know, this is the thing about God. 
when he expresses his name to Moses, he says, I am who I am. So, I guess one thing God can't do is lie, and the other thing he can't do is negate himself and make himself not. He can't do that because he is. And so he has tied his promise to his very existence. So he wants you to know he means business. He really means it. Whatever he's promised, he's going to deliver. And this is the deal. He makes promises so that we share his divine nature. What God is, he gives to us by his promises. For example, his strength. Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, you know, I would love it if I could become big and green and strong and not angry. You know, Hulk works it out in the last movie so that he's big and strong and cuddly and nice. It's not Hulk smash, it's Hulk will write an autograph. There you go. Hulk finally has peace, and I think it's wonderful. <laughs> and I wish it could be like that for me. I wish I would get stronger, but it doesn't work like that. What God does say is that he will enable me to do the things I need to do. So like Paul, if I have to go through a shipwreck and spend a night and a day in the deep hanging on to a piece of wood, why, I can do that. Why don't I just give up and sink and die? Well, because God loves me and I guess I'm supposed to be in the shipwreck. Praise the Lord. See? That's a tremendous thing to have this inward strength that doesn't let you quit and keeps you going. It's a miracle. That's the power of God. How about this humility? Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Can you be a bondservant? Can you humble yourself? Ah, oh, yeah, you can, because Jesus did. And by his promise, he's living in you. He gives you his mind. You can think like him. How about his life? Colossians 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now that's a promise. But his life is in you right now. That's what we're getting into on Friday nights. 1 John 3, now we are the children of God, not then in the future. No, it's already happened. What is happening now is going to come to fruition in the future, but right now, this second, 
child of God. God is really my father. How about his love? Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now you can say, you know what? I don't really like this person. This person has really treated me badly. And I think this person stinks and needs to go to hell. Will you forgive me for thinking those thoughts? And will you give me your love for him? And you can love this nasty, rotten, stinking person and really treat him right. See, that's the divine nature coming through you because God loves stinky, nasty, rotten people. And Jesus said, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How about wisdom? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So we face things we can't handle. And we go, how do I solve this? Well, God has a way that I've never thought of. And I can partake of the divine nature by saying, God, I don't have this. Will you give it to me? So there are more promises in the Bible. That is the amazing thing. God has made some insanely great promises. And Peter sums them up by saying, all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. Everything you need. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, you know what? The only alternative to this is the corruption that's in the world through lust. That's the very last thing that he says there. You have escaped this. But you know, all that's in the world, outside these doors, is lust. And what that means is desire. And the Greek word is an intensive word. It means extreme desire. And it's extreme desire that cannot be satisfied. Because the problem about the world is it's looking to things in the world to supply their need that aren't God. And you can make anything into God, anything. You can say, my job is going to give me all the life and satisfaction that I need and put everything you've got into that God and find out it doesn't work. Just before you get vested in your retirement, they let you go. Because otherwise, that would cost them a ton of dough. So it's cheaper to get two guys to do what you are doing. Start them off on the bottom of the scale and pay them peanuts. Here's a gold watch. See you around. Actually, it's not gold. You put everything you had into your job, and they just kind of get rid of you. And you know, you can do that with anything. 
Money, food, and clothing. Relationships. My education. Anything. You can put that into anything and trust that thing to get you what you need for life, and it will let you down. It will fall through. Do you know that this has never worked in all of recorded history? All of history is proof that people will fail you, jobs will fail you, nations will fail you, everything will fail you. So these things are not the one true living God, and that means there is no substitute for God. Nothing else is going to work. So there's nothing out there. To expect things to provide like they were God is idolatry. And idolatry is always going to betray you. And it's going to lead to dissatisfaction and death and corruption and rot and decay and sewage and garbage. So, you think about this stuff, you don't, you don't expect it, do you? And it is possible to forget how amazing it is to be saved. It's possible to forget how amazing Jesus is. That he chooses you. You forget that he's given you promises that he won't break and that he can't break. You can think you're on your own. You can forget that God cares about you. You can feel like you are little orphan Robbie. And I don't even have a dog because I don't like dogs. If you try to be a Christian on your own, there's no power, there's no desire, there's no ability, there's nothing. So there's no reason to be a Christian on your own. You know what God is doing today? He's just reminding you to be a Christian with Him. And He's reminding you that He's made promises that He's not going to break. And He wants you to tell Him about it. I need this promise. I need that promise. I need your help and your life because I'm not making it. And the amazing thing about God's promise is it gives life. It revives. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I have experienced this. I show up in the morning and I say, God, I feel like death warmed over. I don't feel like doing this. And I can't tell you how many times that God through his word, as I just say, you know what, I'm helpless. But he leads me a certain way, and he revives me. And it's amazing how I get help to keep going today, this day. And it's nothing less than being revived. And 
And this whole thing about being a Christian is to know him by experience. That's what these words knowledge are about. It's not just a head knowledge, but it's a knowledge that comes through participating, experiencing it. So the only way to really know God is to trust him for his promise. Because anything less than that, you don't know God. You know just a bunch of facts, but you don't know them. So you have a need. You find the promise of God that meets that need, and then you bring it to God and you say, hey, got to have it, and no fooling, please. And you know, God has a timing on stuff. So don't be put off by that. God can act so quickly, it'll blow your mind. Just yesterday, heard about an experience where a car has been sitting on a driveway for six years. And the friends were praying that that car would be moved. Because it's not their car. And there was also a problem with a house. Trying to get the house that they own back from the people renting it. And they're not giving it up. So the house is just grinding on. And this lump of a car is just sitting there for six years. And as they were praying about it, they got this thing, wow, this is not going to be resolved, this house thing, until this car is going to be resolved. And then in one day, the car was towed away, and these people got a call from the council saying, we have a substitute house, this family can go into this house, and you can get your house back. Same day. This, all this came down. And you think, whoa, I only thought God did glaciers, you know, that, that take centuries to go six inches. <sighs> yeah, we're trusting in the promises of God. But you know, God can move like that, like no time at all. So you got to let God have his timing. But you know, you commit yourself to him and then you trust him and he's going to fulfill every single promise. Every promise. So a Christian is someone who lives through God's promise. And he loves you so much that he wanted to remind you. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us. Thank you that you made up the idea of a promise. And you mean to fulfill your word. So, Lord, we want to pray for each one of the needs that we have in this room today. And help each one of us find that promise. And take it to you and say, Lord, this is what you promised. Do this for me. 
We pray for every single person to receive that divine nature that you give. Today and this week, Lord, we pray to receive strength and life and hope, purpose and wisdom from you. Thank you for this river of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.